Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me for this Discam Medical Monday. And thank you so much to Discam for sponsoring this absolutely brilliant medical show. I have to tell you, I get to speak to some of the brightest minds, cutting edge of uh, you know health management, uh, disease control. It's it really, I feel very, very privileged to be able to do this. Today, well, actually, this coming Wednesday is International Diabetes Day. And uh, we're going to get all the numbers, but by all accounts, it is a growing issue. It is a growing issue in uh, in the first world. It is a growing issue in South Africa. It is growing everywhere. And uh, untreated, it can be fatal. Um. And I think that it's very important to have all the correct information. Most people will be able to tell you that diabetes is where your body cannot convert the sugar to to use the sugars that are found in fruits and foods and all different foods. Um, there's two different types. We're going to get a quick rundown from my guest. But today we want to focus on the cutting edge medications and treatments for diabetes. And uh, joining me is endocrinologist Dr. Brad Mervitz. He practices in Mill Park Hospital. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. So very, very briefly, type 1 and type 2? So type 1 is less common. It's the type that primarily affects children and young adults. It's an autoimmune condition where the body's immune system attacks and destroys the beta cells, which are the insulin-producing cells in the body. And so over time, this leads to progressive decline in the numbers of beta cells, and ultimately these patients can't produce insulin. In type 2 diabetes, that's the far commoner one. Um, historically, it's, it's uh, affected adults much more, though we are seeing now younger people being affected, and that's purely because of lifestyle. And in this condition, because of adverse lifestyles, so sedentary lifestyles, excess calories, poor quality foods, not enough exercise, the body becomes insulin resistant, which means the body can't respond to insulin in a correct way. With that, there's a progressive loss of the beta cells in the pancreas, not to the same extent as type 1 diabetes, but to some extent. And uh, that allows the sugar to accumulate in the blood and uh, will result in all the adverse events that we see um, and the complications that we see in, in diabetes. So the crisis we're having at the moment is in type 2 diabetes, and this is a worldwide all phenomenon. All lifestyle. Mm, it's all lifestyle. There, there are a small percentage of types of diabetes that's not related to type 1, not related to type 2, but those are really um, a minority of cases. And uh, the problem that we're seeing nowadays is an increase in type 2 diabetes. Very, very scary. We're going to get the numbers from you in a second. But let me give you the numbers that you'll need to know if you want to join the conversation. If you've got any questions, any comments, we welcome them. We'd love to talk to you. And, uh, well, we'd love to hear from you anyway. If you would like to send us a message, you can do so either on SMS. That is, the SMS number is 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. Or you can send us a WhatsApp number. Message on zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz.
It's actually Bradley, right? No, just Brad. Brad Mervitz. Uh, he's an endocrinologist. We're going to be talking about, you know, the latest treatments in diabetes. And this is something, you know, diabetes is colorblind. It doesn't affect a particular income group. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, affect a particular, particular race, racial group. So, um, Let's, can we, have you got the numbers? Have you got the I've figures? I've got some numbers here, yeah. If you look worldwide, these numbers are data from the International Diabetic Federation. It's a worldwide body that collects and collates all the data, puts it together, and then every few years puts out an atlas. So the most recent data from 2017, um, worldwide, there are about 425 million diabetics, although that's probably an underestimate because in most countries, about 50% of patients at least are undiagnosed with their diabetes. So wow. they're walking around there and we don't even know. Um, in Africa alone, we're looking at about 16 million diabetics. And in South Africa in 2017, there were just under 2 million diabetics diagnosed. So if one takes into consideration that the, about 50% are probably undiagnosed, you can see that the numbers are, are staggering. That and would it, be approximately 1% of the population. Yeah. And um, the other thing to note is that those patients with prediabetes, so these are the diseases where the, the risk of becoming diabetic is um, very, very high. It's one of the precursor lesions. That's about double what our diabetics are. So about 2 million South Africans, 2 to 4 million South Africans are uh, ins- have ins- insulin resistance, um, impaired glucose tolerance, and impaired fasting glucose, the prediabetic problems. So the numbers are enormous in South Africa. I often say to people, when people think of malnutrition in South Africa, they think of starving Ethiopian children in the 1980s. But the reality of malnutrition nowadays is overeating, sedentary, overweight, and obese. South Africa is amongst the leading countries in the world for overweight people, for obese people in particular. In fact, uh, World Health Organization prevalence data for women over the age of 18 in South Africa, uh, in terms of being overweight, is about 60%. What has changed? What has changed in our lifestyles? So, firstly, availability of food and poor quality food. You know, many of the fast food um, outlets have been streaming into South Africa in the last 20 years or so. So that's one thing. Fast food is cheap. It's poor quality. Or let's and we're say eating it's on the run. We're eating it on the run. It's easy. It's convenient. Uh, you just need to ask someone how expensive it is to keep a healthy diet. The other thing is status has changed. So in many cult, in many um, let's say groups, it's seen as being a, a status symbol to eat a lot of fast food because it means that you're affluent and you can afford it. So eating habits have changed. Also, we've seen urbanization occurring. So people moving away from rural areas into urban areas. Historically, if you look in the 1980s in South Africa, whilst there was still quite a uh, quite a number of obese and overweight people, at least the diets were were good. With urbanization and moving away from a traditional diet towards a more Western style of diet, we've seen these numbers explode. And, you know, advertisers are targeting, not to be too controversial, but are targeting teens and are targeting young people. So, no, I think it's honest. I don't think it's controversial. So these, these people are being affected at a much younger age, and they're being selected for from a much younger age, and there's an environmental pressure from a younger age than there was in the past. And so now we're seeing all these problems. We're also seeing women who are pregnant with poor maternal nutrition. So during the pregnancy, that nutrition is affecting the fetus. And if the fetus is female, it's affecting her oocytes, her eggs, so that the third generation is getting affected by maternal nutrition already with environmental pressure, selecting for obesity, selecting for insulin resistance, what we call transgenerational epigenetics. So 
all these things are coming together now in a perfect storm to cause this epidemic that we're seeing of firstly being overweight, secondly diabetes. Yeah. And then thirdly, the, the, the mortality, the deaths that we're seeing because of that. It's amazing because I think you've just confirmed what I've always suspected, that how much weight a, a woman puts on during pregnancy will determine the average weight of that child when that child grows up, whether that child is naturally slim or whether that child is going to be naturally overweight. Absolutely. We're seeing that unequivocally now. You know, there's data coming out, animal studies and oh, human so models as well. They're showing that poor maternal nutrition, and I must say that's both overnutrition and undernutrition can affect can affect that fetus in terms of selecting for energy storage, which ultimately translates through to being overweight. Yeah, incredible. All right, so one uh, percent of our population here in South Africa, at least we've got figures. We haven't had figures for a very long yeah. time. Yeah. Most most diseases, you know, we have to use uh, figures from the United States, from Britain, from Europe, because South Africa doesn't have that that information um let's just talk about some of the medications traditionally how was diabetes treated so or is, and is it still treated the same way so when diabetes you know historically type 1 diabetes was the more prevalent because of lifestyle the lifestyle wasn't as bad as it is now and type 1 diabetes unfortunately if someone had it they died because there was no treatment Banting and Best then in the early 1900s synthesized, discovered and synthesized insulin and that revolutionized diabetic management for many years. But for the longest time, all we had was insulin. And these were not purified insulins, they were animal insulins predominantly. So they would elicit immune reactions, but they were life lifesavers. But up until about the 1950s, that's all that we had. In the 1950s, they came with the type of oral medication called sulfonylureas, the class of drugs. They squeeze the pancreas. They induce the pancreas to make more insulin. So obviously that only works in type 2 diabetics because type 1s don't have a pan uh, pancreas that they can squeeze. And those drugs were useful in dropping sugar, but they had side effects. But that was all that we had. In the 1960s, we developed metformin, which is still used glucophage. You may have heard the name. It's a very commonly used drug. It's still the first-line therapy for type 2 diabetics. And then that's what we had. From about the 1990s, the mid-1990s, there's been an explosion of medications that we've got. Insulins have also been synthesized. They're made by recombinant DNA technology. There's certain alterations made to change the way they work. And so we're in a situation now where we've got a number of different types of insulins in terms of how long they work, their duration of action, their mechanism of action. We've also got a whole lot of new oral medications. And it's exciting times to be involved in diabetes because many of these new medications are now providing us with the tools we need to prevent cardiovascular disease most type 2 diabetics will die of heart disease and despite being able to control sugar from the past we haven't been able to impact too much on the heart disease now we're seeing new drugs that are starting to affect that and we're able to provide protection for our patients um, or those patients that have had an event already had a heart attack or a stroke already we can provide them with protection from from having further events so you know there are a number of drugs out there some of them are still coming to the market. Many of them are in the market already in South Africa. And, uh, you know, we, we're using them and we're seeing great results with them. Incredible. All right. So um, I'm speaking to Dr. Brad Mervitz. He's an endocrinologist. He's, uh, he's got a practice in, uh, in Mill Park, at Mill Park Hospital. We're talking about medications and treatments for diabetes. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, how you get in touch is 34519. That's a text line. You can also send us a, a message on WhatsApp. And that number is 061-895-1019. And, um, okay, so 
that glucophage, mm. how did you say that, that that actually worked in the body? So glucophage is what we call an insulin sensitizer. It allows the liver to be more sensitive to the effects of insulin. I'm simplifying it, simplifying it somewhat, but yeah. it allows the liver to be more sensitive to the effects of insulin. And so it decreases uh, glucose output from the liver and it allows the liver to respond in a proper way, a normal way to insulin. And when the liver can respond in a normal way to insulin, the liver is very important in, time, in terms of managing how much glucose is put out into the body and how the glucose is handled. And so we think, we don't know for sure, but we think that's the predominant effect is in the liver with insulin sensitization. There okay. are some other mechanisms that we think, and it's related to some of the newer classes of drugs. We're seeing some similarity with, with the two of them. But insulin uh, resistance, as I said, is the underlying lesion. It's the, the precursor to the precursor to type 2 diabetes. And the majority of people with insulin resistance won't become diabetic, but it can impact on them. It can cause weight gain. It's associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome in women. So if we can address that, then we can help a lot of people. Uh, Glucophage is used very widely at the, mo at the moment, most times off-label. Uh, not everyone needs to be on glucophage, but it's a very useful drug to have. And it is associated with a mild amount of weight loss, which is a benefit. It's really How mild? <laughs> one to two kilograms. <laughs> okay, very yeah, mild. Very mild. Um, but insulin is associated with weight gain. So, And some of the older drugs cause weight gain. So we'll, we'll take what we can in terms of that weight loss. Um, <laughs> And uh, the, it may provide cardiovascular benefit in some patients. So it's a drug we've got 50 years worth of experience with. Um, it's really well tolerated. The main side effect some people experience is a bit of a running tummy, uh, which in many cases may be self-limiting. But for some people, it's severe enough that they have to come off it. Uh, and we know it's predictable. We know how to use it. So it's a good drug and it's a reliable drug. But it doesn't provide an enormous amount of relief from the high sugar. So often it has to be used in combination. And it goes without saying, all the drugs have to be used in combination with a Life good lifestyle. Change. Absolutely. You know, without that, uh, it's very difficult for, for the doctor to choose an appropriate medication regime because if the diet's constantly changing one day, lots of sugar, one day, no sugar, you run the risk of having highs and lows. And a severe episode of hypoglycemia can be catastrophic for a patient. So the lifestyle is very important, then metformin, and depending on how low we need to get the sugar down or how much we need to bring it down, we'll add additional medications to it. You keep mentioning cardiovascular. Mm. What is the re relationship between diabetes type 2 and cardiovascular, aside from lifestyle? So, because, I mean, that, that would obviously, what, what's going to affect your, your kidneys in terms of your bad lifestyle is going mm. to obviously affect your, your heart. We know that diabetics have an excess risk of cardiovascular disease above the background population. If you take an overweight diabetic and compare him or her to an overweight non-diabetic, the overweight diabetic has a much higher background risk of heart disease. That's heart attack, stroke, cardiac failure, all those kinds of things. It's in part due to the sugar itself. It's in part due to inflammation. It might be due to the insulin as well. We're still, you know, be still exploring those kinds of mechanisms. But we know that diabetics have an increased risk. In fact, up until recently, diabetes was viewed as a coronary equivalent. What that means is that the risk of a diabetic was said to be the same as the risk of someone who's already ha had a heart attack, which is very high. We now know that you know, someone who's recently diagnosed with diabetes is very different to someone who's had diabetes for 20 years. But we still have to aggressively manage their risk factors. So really what's, what's happened over the time with diabetic management is that initially everything was dedicated and focused on dropping the sugar. We've been able to accomplish that with medications, but we've still seen an excess mortality rate. We still see lots of people dying. 
So we know with that you have to manage blood pressure and you have to manage cholesterol very aggressively, despite that there's still an excess risk of, of heart disease. So this is where some of the newer drugs are coming in. So there's two main classes of drugs. Without getting too technical, yes. one's called SGLT2 inhibitors, and they allow us to excrete glucose in our urine. So instead of just moving the glucose around the body, which is what a lot of the drugs do, these actually allow us to excrete it. And we're seeing a lot of Gosh, benefit. that must be groundbreaking. That has been. And, you know, anecdotally, I went to a conference um, overseas a couple of years ago, and it was just after a big trial had been announced, the results had been announced, which showed benefit for heart failure. And when they were going through these results again, I mean, this was an enormous conference. It was an enormous conference hall. They had to call in extra security, get extra seats. They had to, some of the doctors weren't allowed in. It was just, it was packed. And there was so much excitement there. And, you know, it's something that endocrinologists get excited about, I guess. But uh, we well, see. I, I think everybody should be because it is so life changing. It is. And in fact, we're actually seeing this class of drugs may be beneficial in non diabetics as well in terms of heart failure. They're also associated with weight loss in diabetics, not in non-diabetics. How much? That minimum again? No. So it seems to be more. It seems to be about three to four kilograms on average. Obviously, those people with more weight to lose will lose more weight. But on average, it's about three to four kilograms. Um, and it's probably because what happens is you're losing the glucose in your urine. So a person is losing calories. The, the expected amount of weight loss is actually up to 11 kilograms based on the caloric loss. But we see patients don't get that. So what that means is they're probably just increasing the amount of calories that they're eating. And that's mm-hmm. what they're not. So it is possible to potentially get a bit more. Yeah, I think, I think that that's probably, and I'm, we're going to get to the, you know, how it feels inside the body of, mm. of somebody who has diabetes. I mean, are they craving sweet foods all the time? Are they craving mm. foods in general? Are they craving carbs? You know, um, before that, though, mm. um, what is the relationship and is there a relationship between diabetes and a person's metabolic rate? It's a difficult question. I, I wouldn't say that the diabetes itself necessarily contributes to that. Yeah. Firstly, people that are in bad habits can affect their metabolics, uh, the way their body handles glucose and handles certain food groups. And that's just over time, changes that occur in the body so that someone may not handle a glucose load in the correct manner. Um, insulin resistance also means that there'll be certain changes in the way someone handles the glucose. So it's not that the rate slows down necessarily, but it's that you just can't handle it in a proper way. You can't necessarily release stores as one needs to. You retain those stores even beyond what's necessary uh, because you need insulin to be able to properly or you need a proper response to insulin to be able to properly handle these uh, metabolic um, uh, the glucose and the, the fats and the proteins and those kinds of things. Also, if people have a predisposition towards diabetes, it may mean that genetically they're programmed to retain calories. So they might be starting off with a lower metabolic rate. Can one change that? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. You know, exercise is important. Insulin sensitizers are important. Um, many people will take thyroid hormone to I've try heard, to do that. I've heard but, of that. Yeah, I've actually heard of that. It's not an ideal way. And it is a difficult thing because it's not uncommon to have people that come to my office and they're doing everything right. They're, they're dieting, they're exercising, and they just can't get the weight off, you know. And sometimes all we can say is it's a genetic thing and you have to just keep trying. There are certain people looking at mechanistically how can we impact on this. Um, the insulin resistance has always been looked as being a consequence to weight gain. So someone would gain weight, which would cause insulin resistance, which worsens weight gain and becomes a kind of vicious cycle. A novel way of looking at it is that some people 
have insulin resistance as a primary problem. And then that leads to weight gain. And the difference there is that if you can address the insulin resistance, you can prevent the weight gain. And some people, this was noticed because some people that shouldn't be developing diabetes develop it nonetheless, type 2 diabetes. And so when they went and looked at these, they said, oh, well, you've got insulin resistance, but you shouldn't have it. So it could be that that's a genetic thing. It's very difficult to impact on basal metabolic rates. Some people do try and manipulate hormones to um, to kind of facilitate that. It's all experimental. But that can be a huge problem yeah, in and of itself. Exactly. And it's all experimental. There's no outcomes data. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is the Diskem Medical Monday. We're talking about diabetes. We're talking about the latest treatments. And uh, my guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is... Uh, He's based at Mill Park. He's an endocrinologist. And if you've got any questions, you're welcome to send them through. We love hearing from you. And uh, you know what? How else are you going to access him, right? So, uh, yeah, just SMS us on 34519. That's the text line. You can also send us a WhatsApp on 061-895-1019. When we come back, I'm going to be asking him about the two different types of medication or two different categories of medication that are being used at the moment. He's already told us about the SGLT2 uh, inhibitors. So uh, we're going to get to the other one shortly. Stay with us. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacist to care. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest today is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is an endocrinologist. He's based at Mill Park, but he's also he, he is, uh, you know, he actually gives presentations to other doctors about the different medications available. And uh, we're talking about diabetes today specifically because Wednesday is World Diabetes Day. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, 061-895-1019 is the WhatsApp number. Send us a message or you can SMS us on 34519. Just before, just before the break, we, you were talking about the two different categories of medications. The first being the SGLT2, which is different because instead of just sending glucose around your body, it actually helps your body to excrete it in the urine. Mm. What give us? Can you give us some brand names? Yes. Yeah, so the um, the generic name, the compound names, we've got two of them available in South Africa. One is called empagliflozin. The the trade name is Jardians. The other one is called dapagliflozin, and the trade name is Forsiga. Um, so those are the two available in South Africa at the moment. Okay. Yeah, and they they differ in price somewhat from about four hundred odd rand to about eight hundred rand. So it depends. Is that on for a month, week, for a month. Okay. Yeah. So it just depends on the drug, and uh, the, the doses don't affect the cost. The costs are the same irrespective of the doses. So the Forsiga, which is Dapagliflozin, that one is the cheaper of the two. The Jardins is the more expensive of the two. Um, and, you know, they've got different indications for use, and the, medication, the medical aids would cover them to uh, different degrees depending on the plan and, uh, and the actual the funder. All right. Well, that kind of answers Becky's question because mm. she said, uh, please, can you mention tablet for diabetes that runs out in the urine, not glucophage? A very interesting program. Thanks, <laughs> Becky. <laughs> yeah. So um, what was the other? So the what other was the other, the other category or the other class so, of drugs? Uh, so these are uh, these two classes, the SGLT2 inhibitors and this other one, these are the two classes that seem to impact on cardiovascular disease. They're not the only two types of drugs we've got, obviously. The other one is called, they're from the class of drugs called the GL. GLP-1 receptor analogs, or GLP-1s. And uh, what they do is we've got cells in our intestines called L-cells, and they secrete hormones. Two of them, one's called GIP and one's called GLP-1. And these have a number of effects in the body. 
Um, it delays gastric emptying. It helps us to feel full. It uh, augments insulin secretion in response to an oral load. It seems to change our gut flora to a beneficial type of gut flora, so the bacteria, a healthier type of bacteria than an, rather than an unhealthy type of bacteria. And these are naturally occurring hormones, what we call incretins. So we've got some drugs available that are like GLP-1. They're almost identical with uh, the odd change here or there just to change the pharmacokinetics, the way the, the, way the drug's handled in the body. And um, one of them available in South Africa has shown cardiovascular benefit. It's also got weight loss, and before you ask, it's got quite a nice amount of weight loss in most patients. Really? Yes. No, I'm looking for options here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm and not in, diabetic. Bear and in, in mind. fact, no. So this drug <laughs> is actually FDA-approved for weight loss in non-diabetics in America. Wow. And uh, we're hoping it will become MCC-approved in South Africa for weight loss as well. I believe it's awaiting the approval here. So we use it off-label for weight loss in non-diabetics as well. About 25% of people won't respond. 75% will get some response. The average amount is about 5 to 6 kilograms, but I've had one patient lose 18 kilograms. I've had one patient lose nothing. So it depends on the individual. Again, it should be with diet and exercise. But um, in terms of the diabetes, it's a very effective drug in terms of lowering sugar, in terms of the weight loss, which is beneficial. It may lower blood pressure somewhat. It can also uh, change the cholesterol profile to be slightly more favorable. And um, it's, a, again, got the cardiovascular benefit. So when we're looking at a patient with cardiovascular disease, and this is a novel way of looking at it, the guidelines are only starting to come around now. But we look at, does a person with diabetes have heart disease? If they do, what type of heart disease do they have? And depending on the type, we would select one of the two first or use them in combination. The only problem with this drug is that it is costly. So to go into the full diabetic dose, it's about 2,000 rand a month. Wow. The weight loss dose at the maximum is about 3,000 rand a month. There is a cheaper version of this drug, but it's not, it doesn't have the cardiovascular benefits like this one. There's also overseas just been launched. Listen, if you want the Mercedes, you're going to pay the That's price it. of a Mercedes. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a drug just been launched in Europe and America, which is from the same class. It's a once-a-week injection. These drugs are injections, not tablets. Uh, it's a once-a-week injection, which shows also great benefits in terms of cardiovascular outcomes and weight loss. Okay. Can you give us a name? So it's called semaglutide. Uh, that's the once-a-week overseas. The the local one, the once-a-day one, is called Victoza, also known as liraglutide. Okay. Do you know that I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was talking about this diet that's all the rage? You know, you know the Seattle mommies, yes, right. And she was saying like all these women are going for these injections, and I said, "What's it called?" And she said, "Victoza." Victoza. Victoza. So, you know, it's like the latest thing. There, I'll tell you, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, shall we say, alternative weight loss programs out there, many of which don't carry good clinical data in terms of um, benefit and safety. Anecdotally, they may work, but at least I know with Victoza, it's had studies done, it's got safety data, and it's FDA approved. So I feel much more comfortable to say to a patient, rather try this and spend the 3,000 rand on this than 3,000 rand on something else where they're getting infusions of funny hormones where we don't have safety data and we don't have outcomes. So how is it that it's being administered here if, it, if it's got FDA approval but it hasn't got the South African so we've got equivalent e approval? Because we've got MCC approval for diabetes. So we can access it for diabetes. What it means practically is that the funders are not obligated to pay for it for weight loss. The funders would pay for it if its indication is for diabetes. Ah, oh, interesting. Mm. Okay. All right, I hear. So uh, yeah. if you're diabetic, you can claim on medical aid. If you're not, you can't. 
Yeah, I mean, again, not all the plans. Otherwise, it's pretty expensive. I mean, 3,000 rand a month. Yeah. And not all the plans are covering this, even for diabetics, because it is expensive. You know, so what we found is that many of the closed medical aids uh, are more more willing to pay for it than some of the open medical aids are, unless it's the top tier plans. And you know, in many cases, it needs a motivation from the doctor to be able to get it. But the medical aids generally won't pay for it if it's a first line drug or a second line add on drug. It would only be indicated for use when there's cardiovascular disease. That's when the medical aids would consider paying for it. Very interesting. And is there a generic? No. There's no generic no, for it. They're new drugs. Okay. They're, they're still on patent, yeah. Okay, very good. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. 34519. The text line is also, uh, that's that's the SMS line. The WhatsApp text is 061-895-1019. Um, Donna says, thanks, Dr. Exceptionally informative. Is there any research between brown fat that the babies are born with mm. and insulin resistance. I didn't even know about this. Donna, you see, you teach me something new every day. Yeah. All right. It's, so it's, it's a great question. So brown fat is very topical at the moment. What's um, brown fat? We've got in our body white fat, which is our regular schmaltz, and brown fat, which is the uh, – um, it's a type of fat that babies are born with more. Uh, we see a lot in animals as well. And for a long time it was thought of being inconsequential in humans. We now know that brown fat burns calories much more effectively. White fat is used as a storage fat. And when that white fat is around the organs, that's the dangerous type, what we call visceral adiposity. That's what's linked to heart disease and insulin resistance and what have you. Brown fat seems to burn calories more effectively. It's in a much smaller quantity. It's in uh, fewer areas in the body. We born with as more. As it would be, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we're born with more, and as we age, it gets less and less and less. And what they're looking into at the moment is what we call browning of fat. We won't be able to convert white fat into brown fat because that will be able to handle these and um, improve insulin sensitivity. So there are a lot of studies looking at ways of doing this. We know, for example, people that are exposed to very cold climates seem to develop more brown fat because the brown fat, because it burns calories, it generates heat. And so it seems to keep people warm in colder areas, colder climates. And so, for example... So why when you're a child you don't get cold? And your mother's constantly telling you to put on a jersey? I've never thought of it, but it would explain a lot with my kids. So. Yeah, just don't feel cold. Yeah. Children don't feel the cold. It's, you know, and they're looking at studies now. Because people are working indoors in climate-controlled environments, we're seeing that people handle calories far, far less e effectively and efficiently than they used to. And there's some studies looking at dropping the, the ambient temperature to about 18 degrees or 16 degrees. That seems to promote browning of fat. And it may promote better handling of glucose and, and upping metabolic rate. It's all experimental at the moment, and they're looking into it. That's it. Our air cons will now be set at 18 or less. So I do Just in, saying. I do it in my office, but my patients are generally not happy with this. So. <laughs> but um, so there, there is, and it's something that's really looking at. We've also now learned that there's an intermediate type called beige fat, which seems to be, you know, could go either way. It could go to brown, could go to white. And so we're trying to find ways to brown this fat, as it were, which would uh, obviously help our patients to improve insulin sensitivity and prevent diabetes. So it's a topic of a lot of research at the moment, but we don't have anything concrete yet. So just remind me, what are, what what is the unique role of brown fat? Um, so it's involved a lot in thermogenesis, so increasing temperature, keeping the body warm, and uh Whereas white fat is more involved with storage of calories for, you know, times of few and famine and what have you. So those are the main differences. The brown fat is not concerned with storing the calories and storing the fat. It, it's used in a different way completely. It does something completely different to white fat. 
So it'll burn the calories and keep uh, keep bodies warm. Absolutely fascinating. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. My guest is Dr. Brad Merwitz, and uh, he's an endocrinologist. He's based at Mill Park. We're talking about diabetes. We're talking about the cutting-edge technologies and uh, the different treatments for diabetes. We've spoken about uh, the two main categories of medications that are being used these days, which is the SGLT2 inhibitors, and um, those are the ones that instead of making you know, like previous medications used to just keep the glucose just going round and round your body. These ones actually help your body to excrete. Mm. Um, the cost of those medications, I can't remember About the name. Four to, four to between four and eight hundred mm. rand a month. Um, and then there's the GLP one receptor analogs. Is that right? That's right. And uh, those are this new generation that comes in the form of an injection. Yeah. It's actually. It's got the, this tremendous benefit to cardiovascular, mm. to protecting cardiovascular, mm. um, your system. And yeah, yeah. I, I think that's incredible. So these drugs, they've shown main benefit in those people that have had an event, but they are looking at those that have not had an event and see if there's benefit there. And so, in fact, for dapagliflozin, which I mentioned earlier, it was just this weekend, um, results of a big, big outcome study that was done. And it showed benefit in terms of heart failure in patients with no history of heart disease. So we're starting to see that these are impacting even in healthy individuals or healthier individuals. So it's, um, it is very exciting. Um, I must say that we do have other classes as well that are also used far more commonly than these ones because of the cost. But they don't have the demonstrated benefits for cardiovascular outcomes as these two classes do. Yeah. Akiva wants to know, can diabetes be cured? Well, there's a question. So... <laughs> Well, yes and no. So I'd say yes and no because um, in type 2 diabetes, if we get it early enough, I'm saying really early. So, for example, I've had a couple of patients where we've had, say, a discovery vitality check with a normal sugar uh, in the start of the year and now they're diabetic on their bloods later on in the year. So we know they're still within a year. With very aggressive lifestyle interventions and possibly metformin, we can reverse it. Or the other one that's shown, ben, um, that's shown the ability to reverse diabetes is severe calorie restriction. So a very strict diet, calorie restriction, and then you gradually start eating normally again. But that needs ongoing maintenance. So it's not like, okay, it's cured and finished. It means you need to carry on being rather strict with your lifestyle. Um, in, term, in terms of type 1 diabetes, cure, they're looking at pancreatic, or not looking at, we know you can transplant a pancreas, and you can transplant those beta cells. So... They, uh, the problem with the pancreatic transplant is that it needs immune suppression, like any transplant. Otherwise, it will degenerate over time. But they have had good results with it. So pancreatic transplants are done. They're not done commonly. They're usually done with kidney transplants in South Africa, not alone. Um, and that's shown the ability to reverse diabetes or cure diabetes. The islet cell transplants are a bit more uh, favored because it's easier. Technically, it may not need the same degree of immune suppression. But those cells degenerate over time, so they might need repeated cycles of those. And you have to get the cells from somewhere. So, you know, whether you're growing them in a laboratory or there's a donor, um, you have to get the cells from somewhere. So it is still expensive. It's still, we're still learning, but it is being done. Not so much, uh, the pancreatic transplants are being done in South Africa. The islet cell transplants less so, but overseas in Europe, in Italy in particular, we're seeing that quite a lot. And so for type 1, there, there's some, uh, there is some stuff available. Type 2 is more difficult. The other problem with type 2 diabetes is that 
in many people, it can be 10 years before someone is diagnosed, even though they've had it as a background problem. By that stage, the horse has bolted. So it's very difficult to reverse or cure diabetes there. The last thing that they've shown is that bariatric surgery, these weight loss surgeries, may reverse diabetes. Um, and again, that's predominantly through calorie restriction, but not exclusively. There are changes that happen in the gut flora and, and other metabolic changes that occur that seem to be able to cure diabetes, and if not cure it, then ameliorate it greatly. Incredible. As I understand it, um, you know, you're talking about white fat versus brown fat. So your white fat, that as, as you gain bulk mm. um, on, your, on your tummy specifically, those organs start having to work in a smaller and smaller and smaller space, which makes them very, very inefficient. So what you're saying makes sense, yeah. that this bariatric surgery would be able to reverse yeah. it because all of a sudden they've got space and they're able to operate. Yeah, and we also know, you know, we used to always think that white fat was inert. It just used to store calories, but we know that it's not inert. Fat, it's got hormones as well. It, exactly. It? Fat is an endocrine organ. And what happens in many type 2 diabetics is that white fat gets deposited in tissues where it doesn't belong muscles, um, the pancreas, other organs. And when it's there and it excretes its hormones, that does impact on the ability of that organ to function efficiently. When that happens in the pancreas, it can actually cause death of the beta cells and the liver can impair glucose sensitivity. So that's why getting rid of that fat is, uh, is of benefit. Very interesting. My guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz, and uh, he is based at Mill Park Hospital. He's an endocrinologist. Asked him to come in today because World Diabetes Day is on Wednesday, and uh, we're not talking about diabetes as a disease as such. I think we've done that a lot in the past, but talking about the, you know, the medications, how treatment has changed. I mean, one percent of the South African population is diabetic, and that's that's including diagnosed and undiagnosed. Mm. Um, how do you know if you are pre-diabetic? Often you won't. Um, it's picked up in blood tests. So it could be a blood test that's done for another reason. Sometimes people say that they're struggling to lose weight, and so the doctor will do glucose or insulin levels. We don't recommend insulin levels are done, but they, they are done. Um, or we don't recommend they're done for uh, when there aren't particular indications for it. But it's usually picked up um, either incidentally or there's a background history or someone's been gaining weight or something like that. But there are no clinical features necessarily beyond the weight gain or inability to, to lose weight. There are no other clinical features in, in pre-diabetes. So it, it requires blood tests. Very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, all right, Ella wants to know, is there stem cell research into curing diabetes? There, I think that that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Ella. There, there definitely is. Um, again, you know, it would be more beneficial to type 1 diabetics than type 2 diabetics just because of the nature of the disease. But they are because if we can get stem cells to function as beta cells, then you can, you know, get rid of the type 1 diabetes because that's where the problem is. The problem is there are no beta cells. In type 2, it's a bit more complicated than that. So in terms of stem cell functioning for um, causing them to become beta cells, become a pancreas, and particularly if you can do it with minimal immune, you know, eliciting a minimal immune response, that would be the best way. So they definitely are looking at that. Um, and uh, for type 2s, it's a bit more complicated, but they have looked at islet cell transplants in type 2s, uh, which has shown some benefit, but it's not being done very widely at the moment. Yeah. Are you diabetic? Are you a, are you a diabetic? Uh, How's your medication working for you? Have you 
had to change medication? Has it been up and down, up and down? A few weeks ago, I was actually speaking to one of our presenters who uh, who's diabetic. And even though he was diagnosed years ago, you know, he's going through a stage now where he's having to have mm. all these tests and they are reevaluating his medication. Is that an ongoing reality for diabetics? It can be. I mean, the psychology of diabetes is a talk all in of itself. But um, there are very few illnesses, firstly, that require as much time and effort to be put into managing them as diabetes. If you think about someone that's on, say, four insulin injections a day, you're checking your sugars ideally at least six to seven times a day. You have to inject yourself before every meal and sometimes, you know, before you go to sleep at night when you wake up in the morning. And you have to be concerned about what you're putting into your body. How's it going to affect your sugar? Do I need to take more insulin? Do I need to take less insulin? And uh, particularly if diets are erratic, then you do get this kind of, uh, seesawing of, of blood sugar it goes up and down and up and down and it can be very difficult to manage uh, we have some new tools available to assist us with that what we call continuous glucose monitoring we've got insulin infusion pumps we've got newer types of insulins uh, which help seem to help with that but it is it can be a very difficult and frustrating illness to control because of the the way that sugar levels can uh, fluctuate throughout the day very interesting you know when one talks about treatments um, a family friend of mine her, she's got a, a child who, at the age of 18 months, I think it was around about 18 months, was diagnosed as diabetic, type 1. Mm. Very, very difficult to mar- manage diabetes in a child. And uh, she's they're based in Israel. They live in Israel. And they've got this whole system. Now, I don't know if they've got it here. I haven't seen it here. But it's like this, it's this little computer that is actually um, surgically inserted into the child and she carries it around it looks like a little remote control and as she clicks the one button it will give her a reading of her child's insulin level there and then without any pricks without any pain or discomfort for the child and not only that but it will also um, administer the um, the insulin, mm-hmm. which is which is incredible, and in addition to that, there's an alarm that goes off if it's uh, below a certain level. Do we have that here? We, we have very similar things. We don't have one where you can remotely give insulin. So the ones that we've got available at the moment, you need to actually still have the pump next to you to to bolus the insulin. But we have monitoring systems that can transmit to cell phones, and more than just one cell phone, to multiple cell phones, and so it's very useful in patients, uh, children. Especially if your child's at school and, the te- and you know, how's the teacher going to know? Yeah. She doesn't and know anything from so the, go to the parent, to the teacher, and to the child as well. Uh, there are a number of these systems. There's some that have to be replaced uh, every few days. There's some that go under the surface and are there for about three months or so. So they, we've got about four different continuous glucose monitoring systems in South Africa. Um, some of them can be paired with pumps, and so um, m- some of them can't. And then we've got one where the pump is, uh, it works very closely with the continuous glucose monitoring, but at the moment what it can do is it can suspend insulin delivery in response to a low or a predicted low. There are new pumps that are now able to administer additional insulin in response to a high, and those will probably be here next year sometime. Incredible. mm. Life-changing. It's an artificial pancreas. Yeah, that's exactly exactly what it is, Mm. and this kid has got a normal life. Yeah. You know, we'll be sitting and we'll be having a a meal, and she'll pick up this. it It looks like a, I don't know, kind of looks like a very small cell phone. Yeah. And she'll just check his his levels, you know. She clicks and it 
It's, it's incredible. Yeah. No, no, it's, uh, there's some amazing technology out there, and Israel's actually one of the leaders in terms of this technology and developing um, some of these new, these new things. Uh, and we've seen here with our patients how, look, it's, there's still work. It still takes work. The pump is not a cure-all, and not everyone is a candidate for a pump. But when it works, it's amazing to see amazing to see the sugars control and to be able to bring a patient's glucose into we aim for something called time in target because patients get highs and lows we want to try bring the graph down so that they're spending the, the majority of time in our target range and what's been the major obstacle to that is that as you get tighter in glucose control the risk of lows becomes greater and as i said earlier one severe low can be catastrophic so if you can avoid those lows, it means you can bring the highs down with some security, knowing you're not going to cause a low. And these pumps and the continuous glucose monitoring systems allow us to do that. And so it's, it's really revolutionized diabetic management. It's also putting, it's putting the power back into the patient's hands. They can now see what they're doing. They can manage it. And if you educate your patient well enough, oftentimes they'll come in, they know, about, they know more about the condition and what their sugar is going to do and what the technology does more than the doctor, more than the diabetic nurse educators. There are... A whole lot of forums out there on the internet, you know, people with diabetes, they all communicate with each other, blog about their experiences. And so it's a field now where we're seeing major changes. I'm speaking to Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is an endocrinologist. He's based at Mill Park Hospital. And uh, Wednesday is World Diabetes Day. So that's why we're talking about diabetes. But we're not going through, you know, what happens with the islets of Langerhans and this doesn't work and that doesn't work and the pancreas and what we're talking about is medications and, uh, you know, what medications are effective, how they have evolved, where they are today, what they are today. And uh, we've got to take a quick ad break. But, yeah, I want to ask him about all the other aids and treatments available to diabetics. If you want to get in touch with us, 34519, that's the SMS line, or 061-895-1019. Get in touch. Love to hear from you. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. I'm Kathy Kayla, and thank you so much to Discam for uh, this Discam Medical Monday. Thank you also to Dr. Brad Mervitz, who is an endocrinologist. He's based at Mill Park Hospital. He actually goes and he, he lectures and he does presentations to other doctors uh, about the medications available, about all the, you know, all these different therapies available. So we've spoken about all the different Medications are two different categories that are used today. Very, very dynamic, all new stuff, uh, very effective. What are the other tools that diabetics have? I mean, for example, if you, I don't know, you read an article today that says if you eat 100 tomatoes a day, it will cure your diabetes. Are there wonder foods that all, diabet- all diabetics should be adding more of to their diet? I don't think that they're wonder foods. Uh, I think the important thing is, uh, you know, moderation is important and seichel is important, uh, good common sense is important as well. But uh, there are some diets that seem to be of benefit to, to diabetics. Um, but this is a, it's a, this is a quagmire really at the moment um, when you look at diet. Uh, and for every, every bit of data you show me on one side, I can show you for the other side. But for exactly. example, something like a banting type diet. Uh, for many diabetics, is a life changer. So for many of them, their sugars will control because they're cutting out those carbs, and those carbs are what causes the fluctuations. I'm not going to discuss too much about the cholesterol there because that's where the main 
controversy is. But anecdotally, I've got colleagues who use this type of diet with amazing results. And in fact, I've seen it even in when I was working in the government sector still. I saw some patients that adopted this kind of diet and their sugars came under control. They lost weight. They did fantastically. The cholesterol is the main issue over there. Similarly, I've had patients that go into a diet where they cut out all and a more vegan type diet. And they're having lots of carbs, but grains and healthy carbs. And they do very well as well. I think what's and they're not deep frying them. No, exactly. What, you see, what they have in common, the two diets, is that they're cutting out refined foods and they're cutting out processed foods. And if you cut out the junk, then you're already off on, on a good footing. And junk in this case could also be macaroni and pasta because of the high processing that goes into that. That's I mean, it. And, you know, yeah. white, white, white pastas, white breads, all those kinds of things, very high GI foods. It's going to cause the sugar to spike and it's a nightmare and it worsens everything, particularly in type 2 diabetics. And that's why people that – it's not to say that fats and proteins won't cause the sugar to go up because they do, but not in an as uh, rapid manner as carbohydrates do. And so – um, you know, there's no one size fits all. That's the first thing. You know, some people try banting, they don't lose a shred. They try a high carb, low fat diet, and they do very well. You have to find what works for you. But the first thing is to cut out all the junk, and uh, you're already going to be doing well and feeling better then once you get over that first week of, of withdrawal. Um, and so that's benefit. Exercise is really super important as well, you know, and it allows people to feel better uh, emotionally, physically. It helps the sugar control as well. It can help with insulin sensitivity. Helps you to sleep better. Absolutely. Mm. So, you know, those are the first two things. Those are no-brainers that, that um, you, have to, you have to implement in, in your life if, uh, if you're going to stop that. Then we look at other things, stopping smoking and all those, uh, the other benefit, because those will exacerbate any of the other risk factors that someone has for um, the, the complications. Okay. Um, other tools so, um, in, in detection? Yeah. I mean, I've seen so, the use of dogs. Yeah, so I mean that, and I've actually got some... Uh, some of the dogs that can smell cancer in Cape Town. So they're looking at these animals now that can detect when the sugar's high yes. and they can alert their owners. So they've used dogs to, and they're pretty good, these dogs. You know, um, they really have a remarkable amount of accuracy. They can detect when the sugar's high through sniffing and uh, they can alert their owners. So uh, I'm not sure if a dog or a continuous glucose monitor unit is preferable. I guess it depends on if you're a dog person or a, a machine person. But uh, <laughs> certainly these are things that are out there. Uh, I was mentioning to you earlier, they're, they're, they're looking at contact lenses now that can uh, monitor glucose levels. So instead of having to prick your finger, you can do it with contact lenses. There are certain cell phone apps that can use the, the flash on the cell phone to pick up glucose as well. And there are all these things, sweat tests. And you know what I love about all of this is that all of these things were once developed for the military. Yeah. It was once de de developed for the military, and now it's been used to heal people. You know, LASIK surgery, anything with laser surgery, mm -hmm. you know, microsurgery, all of this was developed originally for the military, and it keeps bringing me back to, you know, I think it was Isaiah, where he says, uh, and you shall beat your plows into, your, what's it, you uh, shall beat your, your, swords. your swords into plowshares. Yeah. yeah, you know, beating something that's used for destruction into something that is used to help humanity. And and uh, I think that's where we're going to leave it. Unless, okay, so do you want to just give us a, a takeaway? Yeah, the best for type 2, type 2 diabetes, the best form, I mean, it's, it's an old aphorism, but the best form of cure is prevention. So, you know, don't, don't get into a situation where you're at risk for it anyway. So to do everything one can in terms of lifestyle modifications, exercise, a healthy diet, a sensible diet, fair diets don't work, miracle cures, unfortunately, don't work. 
you know. And so there are a million weight loss products out there that all have to be done in conjunction with a calorie-controlled diet and exercise. I think, again, common sense, that's the most important thing. If you can prevent the diabetes, then we don't have to get onto all these fancy medications. And there you have it. Thank you so very, very much. Dr. Brad Mervitz, he is uh, based at Mill Park Hospital. He's an endocrinologist, and this has been the Diskem Medical Monday. Thank you so much for, for, for joining me. If there's anything that you have missed, go back, listen to the podcast. You'll find it up on the highfm.com website. It'll be up late on today. Also, if you follow us on social media, either on Twitter or on uh, Facebook, then... You'll get it there as well. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless, and I'll see you same time, same place next week. God bless. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.